Remember when Moses met God in that burning bush experience and he was commissioned of God to go and deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, when I go back, they're going to want to know your name. What's your name? And God gives the divine name, the sacred name of God, I am. Now, this is the first time the Lord uses it. He's going to use it seven times. And as he uses it more and more, the people get madder and madder and madder that he would use the divine name of God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He identifies himself with the Father. And here in this verse, he claims to be both the bread that satisfies and the water that will quench their thirst. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part One. We began to look yesterday at the Bread of Life Discourse as outlined in Chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Last time, Pastor Carl began examining verse 37, which reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This verse is certainly one of the most important verses that Jesus is delivering, because in this verse you find a balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both the doctrine of election and the doctrine of free will are covered in this verse. Now, to find out more about these doctrines, let's rejoin Pastor Carl. The Bible teaches are condemned. The Son of Man came not to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is saved. He who does not believe is condemned already. We are condemned before God in our sin. Romans 5.10 says that we're enemies of God. But he heard a witness. There was a little girl in his home who had not forgotten the God of Israel. And being the faithful worker that she was, she had an effective witness. She had a basis in which she could speak to her master. Some of us, because we're faithful workers, we have integrity with those for whom we work or serve. And so you have a platform from which to witness. Now, initially, this guy tries to save himself. He goes to the king of Israel, the king of Syria. He brings all of his money thinking that somehow he can buy the prophet's favor. But he realizes he cannot. Initially, he resists God's way of deliverance for him. But then he comes in faith. He believes the word of God. He's instantly healed. He's delivered from his leprosy. And like anyone who's delivered from their sin, he makes an open confession. And he says, I know now that the God of Israel is the one true God. And the Bible said that he left in peace. Now, Jesus is looking for people just like Naaman. People who recognize that they are condemned, who are enemies of God, they hear a witness as the word of God is preached. They recognize they cannot save themselves. They must simply believe and cling to the word of God. They're delivered from the penalty of their sin. They're willing to openly confess him and they leave with peace with God. Jesus said it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, that he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so all false religion has as its core a works righteousness. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Liberal Protestantism, the social gospel says, just help your fellow man and you'll make it to heaven. 
Legalistic Catholicism says, do penance, earn indulgences, have masses said, and you'll be accepted by God. Islam says to fast. Hinduism says to torture your body and perform prodigies of physical endurance. And even the rabbis in Christ's day said, just follow our traditions and God will accept you. But Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. He makes it very clear that the only quote-unquote work that was necessary was to believe the Father who sent the Son. Now, the Bible says that there is none who seeks God, no, not one. Understand that salvation is the work of God. You don't read in the Bible the lost sheep looking for the Savior. You find the Savior, the, Savior, the shepherd, looking for the lost sheep. When Adam sinned, he was running from God. He was hiding from God. It was God who sought him who said, Where art thou, Adam? That's not the voice of a detective. That's the voice of a seeking, searching God coming after man to help him to see his need for, for a Savior. Now, please understand, when a person believes in the Lord, that is a work of God. Don't understand faith to be some kind of work. It is not. How can someone who is dead in his sin generate faith in his own heart? He cannot. The initiative begins with God. Faith is not a work. It is simply the channel that embraces what Jesus Christ has done. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what God requires. Now, being irritated with what he has to say, they demand a sign. Notice verse 30. They said, therefore, to him, what then shall you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? A lot of folks just like that today. If you'll just give me a sign, if you'll just give me a feeling, if I, if I can have a certain kind of experience, then I will believe. Jesus said, it is an adulterous and evil generation that craves a sign. Why? Because it basically says, God, your word is not trustworthy. So what work do you perform? How could they ask that question in light of the fact that Jesus had already been authenticated by the Father? I mean, the day before, he fed 20,000 people. But you see, the problem with miracle faith is that it always craves more miracles. Now, never before in the history of the world, not even during those rare times of transition, had God ever done miracles. Now, there are people that would have you to believe that miracles are something that just should happen today at the hands of these great healers and these evangelists and so forth. But understand, in the course of biblical history, there's never been a continuity of miracles. Noah never did a miracle. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob never did a miracle. The first miracles that come on the scene are hundreds of years after creation when Moses comes and there's a time in Israel's history where there's a transition. Moses leaves the scene, Joshua's commissioned, and after his death, hundreds of years go by and there's no more miracles in Israel until Elijah and Elisha comes on the scene. Another time of great transition. They die, hundreds of years go by, no miracles until Christ and the apostles come on the scene. Those men are gone, and the Scripture is very clear that God will not do miracles again through individuals as such until we come to the final transition in time during the tribulation before Jesus Christ returns from heaven. So there's never been a continuity of miracles throughout the Scripture. It was only during the great ganglions of spiritual history that God performed miracles. But never before had anyone ever demonstrated the kinds of miracles that Jesus Christ did. But they respond, our fathers 
ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, and they quote loosely here, Psalm 78, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Don't miss what they're saying. In effect, they're saying to the Lord, so you fed thousands of people with a few fish and loaves. What's so great about that? Moses fed a couple of million people seven days a week for 40 years with manna. So if you are the prophet that we think that you're supposed to do, what are you going to do to top that? They wanted to see in order to believe. But that's an insult to God because God had already authenticated that his word was true. Not to mention that miracle faith alone can be deceived because the Bible tells us that Satan, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, can perform lying wonders. And so it's an insult. Now that's the astonishment of the multitude in the assessment of the master. He pulls back the veneer and he says, let me tell you what the real problem is. The problem is a problem of unbelief. Now with that, and we'll camp the rest of our time here, comes the announcement of the mystery. An incredible mystery as to how salvation transpires. Notice verse 32, if you will. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So in his reply, the Lord unveils their folly, and, and he highlights three truths. First, it was Moses, not Moses who gave the manna, but God did. Moses was just the instrument that God used to pull off the miracle. Had you told Moses that he had created the bread, he would have fallen on his face in fear that the fire of God would have come. No, Jesus wants to get their eyes off Moses and put it back on God. Secondly, what Moses did, he did in the past. He uses a past tense. Moses has given you the bread out of heaven. What he did is done and over. But what the Lord Jesus is doing is something that is very much present. But it is my Father who gives to you the true bread out of heaven, which we will identify as himself. And third, the manna that was from heaven was not true bread. It's what theologians call a type, an illustration, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And we'll see next time as we step through Christ's explanation of bread and manna, how manna was a picture, a foreshadowing of the ultimate true bread. But manna was perishable bread. It met only physical needs, but Christ is the true bread and he goes far beyond the physical. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The manna could only sustain life. This bread gives life. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They're just like the woman at the well. Sir, give me this water so that when I get thirsty, I won't have to come here anymore and draw. So the Lord had to take her mind out of the well and put it in the realm of the spiritual. And he has to take their thinking away from the dinner table and bring it to the realm of truth. And so he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, this is the first of seven statements that Christ makes. Ego I me, the I am statements of the Gospel of John. Remember when Moses met God in that burning bush experience, and he was commissioned of God to go and deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he said, when I go back, they're going to want to know your name. What's your name? And God gives the divine name, the sacred name of God, I am. Now, this is the first time the Lord uses it. He's going to use it seven times, 
And as he uses it more and more, the people get madder and madder and madder that he would use the divine name of God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He identifies himself with the Father. And here in this verse, he claims to be both the bread that satisfies and the water that will quench their thirst. And so... For one, to understand this, they have to come to Christ. And coming to Christ, notice, is equating with believing in him. He who comes to me and he who believes in me. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, a hungry person can sit down at a table and turn up his nose at the food and leave just as hungry as he came. And you can hear me preach this morning and hear God's word. But if you turn your nose up at God's word, God's truth, I'm not sharing my ideas, but what the Bible says, then you will never experience the new life. But when the hungry person, when the thirsty person comes to Christ, it satisfies the depths of your soul. Some of you are here this morning. Some of you are listening and you are looking for life. And you've looked in all the wrong places. You thought if I could just become a little more famous, a little more wealthy, if I could just have a bigger house, if I could just have a larger bank account, that somehow I will be a satisfied individual. But you will never find satisfaction in those things. Christ alone claims to be the one who can satisfy the depths of your soul. And of course, when he satisfies you, it doesn't mean that you won't keep coming and eating or that you will keep coming and drinking, but the core of your being is satisfied. And so, notice if you will, and by the way, let me just say parenthetically, this verse has absolutely nothing to do with the Eucharist. The metaphors here of eating his body and drinking his blood are defined in this verse. It is the person who comes to him, who eats of him, as it were, who will not hunger. It is the person who believes in him, who will not thirst. But we'll look at that in more detail next time. But look at verse 36. But I said to you, here's the reason why they are unresponsive. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You see me with your physical eyes. But you don't really understand the significance. And here's why. He's going to assess. Here's the reason for their unbelief. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, this is one of the most important verses in this sermon. Because you find in this sermon a balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You find in this verse both the doctrine of election and free will. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. That's the doctrine of election. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's free will. That's human responsibility. Now, there's a raging theological argument in our day between election and free will. There are some who put all of their eggs in the basket of election, and they basically say this. They say, God is a sovereign God chooses people who will go to heaven. So he chose him to go to heaven and him to go to hell, her to go to heaven, her to go to hell. And God predestines some people to go to heaven and he predestines other people to go to hell. Now, typically, that's today is called Calvinism, though certainly Calvinism involves a whole lot more than just the doctrine of salvation. Calvin was one of the Protestant reformers, for those that don't know, who lived about 1509 to 1564. There are other people who put all of their eggs in the basket of free will. 
and they say man is totally free. Man can make a decision for, for, for God totally independently of God. Man has a spark left in him where all by himself he can come to faith in the Lord. And these same people equally argue that man is so free that he can just as freely, after having received Christ, reject him and lose their salvation. Now that idea was first introduced by a man by the name of Jacobus Arminius. He lived about 25 years after John Calvin. Years ago, someone tried to persuade me that God has chosen some people for salvation and other people for damnation. Some people, God, they said, predetermined to go to heaven, and other people, he predetermined to go to hell. Have you ever heard that? Hey, you have. It's a popular teaching. Now, I don't believe that for one skinny minute. I happen to believe it is very debilitating to the cause of Jesus Christ, to missions, and to evangelism. I don't care what they say. The fact is, is that those who teach it aren't winning people to Jesus and sending missionaries like the rest of the body of Christ says. Now, if you've not encountered this, you're going to encounter it. And you need to be able to give a clear, cogent answer, a biblical answer on how to respond. You say, what are you? I'm neither. There's portions and facets of Calvinism that are absolutely right on. There are facets of Arminianism that are correct. God works sovereignly. Man chooses freely. I'm Calvinian. But let me give you some verses that deal with this issue. And you're going to have to face it. If you don't face it, your kids are going to face it. And you need to be able to give an intelligent answer. In fact, the most asked question in my wife's high school class in terms of what they wanted her to cover in these months was this very issue. So jot down some of these verses. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Paul writes to Timothy. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, please note, not some, but all. In fact, when he comes to verse 6 of that chapter, he will say that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. God desires all men to be saved because Jesus Christ died for all men. And of course, there are those who have an explanation for this verse and all the verses like it. Now, I wish I had time to dissect every single verse that they look at. But I have a whole course on the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, where I look at all of the verses that the Calvinist and the Arminian uses, and we look very carefully at each one. So some who are motivated might want to go back and get some of those messages. But they would immediately come back and say, listen, you say God wants all men to be saved. That God doesn't want any people to be lost. Well, how is it that some people are lost? I mean, if God wants all men to be saved and people are lost and go to hell, does that mean that God is not sovereign? And so the hyper-Calvinist has an explanation. One, when Paul says in this chapter that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, all doesn't mean all in their theology. All doesn't mean all men, all people. A Calvinist, when he says, for God so loved the world, he doesn't mean the world, meaning everybody. He means the world of the elect. He believes in what's called a limited atonement, a particular atonement, that Jesus Christ did not shed his blood for all men, but a select few. And that's why... Some of my Calvinist friends cannot look at the guy they meet on the street and say, God loves you, Christ died for you. Because they don't know that in their thinking. They can't say that until that person comes to faith. 
But I want to tell you, all men mean all men here, just as it does for God so loved the world. Some of these people are educated beyond their own intelligence. They've come up with some explanations that I think that are very foolish. And what they fail to do is to distinguish between God's moral will and God's determinative will. God's determinative will are those things that God determines or dictates are going to happen in spite of man. For instance, God created the world. He flooded it with water at one point. There's coming a time when he's going to burn the whole world with fire and he's going to speak a new heaven and a new earth into existence and it has absolutely nothing to do with any of us. Because God is a sovereign God has revealed that that is what he has determined to do. But God's moral will, on the other hand, is not always done. For instance, it is God's moral will that you should not commit murder. But every single day, murders take place. That doesn't mean that God is frustrated, that God is any less sovereign, that man can choose to commit murder. It simply means that God in his sovereignty has given man a free will to choose so that he would not be a robot or machine, but like himself made in his own image. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 50, Forever does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. The clear implication is that some choose not to do the will of the Father. And of course, while man is free to choose, he is not free to escape the consequences of that choice. But what I want you to see is God does not run over your free will like a bulldozer. Nor does God ravish anyone's human will with what some call irresistible grace. That God's will cannot be resisted. That is so far from the truth. Please understand, God is sovereign, but he does not smush your free will. Now, in saying that, that God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. We are not teaching the doctrine of universalism. You know what universalism is. It's held by groups like the Unity and Unitarian Universalists and a lot of liberal Protestants today that basically says in the end, we're all going to be saved. Well, Jesus, of course, said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to hell, to destruction. Many are those who enter by it. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. He taught, in the end, there's a whole lot more going down than there is going up. In the parable of the sower, in three out of four soils, people rejected him. So the scripture does not teach universalism, that all men will be saved. But neither does it teach that God's will is frustrated when he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This word desires, stello in the original, speaks of what God delights in, what God wants. And God says that he delights in the salvation of men, but notice it is dependent on their coming to a knowledge of the truth. And of course, not everyone has heard the gospel, so not everyone is a believer. And some people will never hear the gospel. Some people will never hear the plan of salvation, and God will justly condemn them to hell because they did not hear for the simple reason that God practices that which he preaches. God told me as a pastor in the Sermon on the Mount, that when I meet someone who has such utter contempt for the things of God, for holy things, I am to withhold the gospel pearl, lest it be trampled in the mud by the swine. 
Even so, the Lord God has given a measure of, of revelation to all men through the creation around from the conscience within. And some men suppress that revelation, professing to be wise. The Bible says they become fools and God withholds any more truth. So men need to come to a knowledge of the truth. That does not minimize my responsibility as a Christian or the role of the body of Christ. God sovereignly dictates missionaries, radio broadcasts, pamphlets, books, whatever it takes all around the world to get the gospel to those hearts who are open. And so God desires men to come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires all men to be saved. God's not content just with our salvation. He is interested in the salvation of the lost. And so you can't say, well, God's my Savior. I'm going to heaven. My name's in the Lamb's book of life. Let the rest hang. No. God desires all men to be forgiven. Now, I take a moment to comment on 1 Timothy because there's an explanation to each of these verses. Jot down this one. 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Calvinist says that's right. God wants all to come to repentance, but they cannot come to repentance unless God first draws them. And that is certainly true. Jesus himself will say it here in verse 44 in this discourse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we need to ask, does God, through the Holy Spirit, give all men the same chance? We'll write down this verse, John 12, 32. We'll study it later. Jesus said, and I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He's speaking prophetically. He's going to be lifted up to the earth. He's going to be lifted on a cross, risen from the dead, not because he wants people lost, but because he wants people saved. For the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. So the drawing of God is not on a select few. It is on all men, but men must respond. They must come to him as God begins to draw them. Write down this verse, John 16, 8. He's speaking prophetically about the coming work of the Spirit from that perspective at that time. And he says, he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The world means world. It means everybody. But you see, the problem is not God's sovereignty. The problem is man's will. We studied that problem a few weeks ago. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He does not say unable, but unwilling. Oh, but some people say. When God, the Holy Spirit, works in a person's life, they cannot resist the grace of God. It is irresistible grace. That is so far from the truth. You can resist God's work. Stephen is preaching to the Jewish people of his day. He is preaching that Christ is Lord. And they begin to get angry at him. They gnash their teeth at him. And he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, Talk about that kind of preaching today. It doesn't win friend and influence people. You are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and ears always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just like your fathers did. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John. 
1-800-273-0817. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.